Hello, friends. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason, and uh, I appreciate you being part of our show. Thank you for joining me. Uh, before I get to callers here quickly, in just a moment, because a lot's been waiting from the last hour I spent, that riotous hour with Frank Turek. Um, just a, a note that I am going to be this weekend in um, Brighton, Michigan, that's outside of Detroit, and I will not be available on the Saturday night. So I'm correcting a mistake that I made last time I announced about this last week. And I said this on the earlier podcast for this week, but uh, I wanted to mention it again. Um, If you'd like to hear me give my talk on the story of reality, you can come to Community Bible Church in Brighton, Michigan, on uh, on Sunday, and uh, at the 9 o'clock, the 10.30, and the noon, 12 noon services. I will also be back in the evening at 6.30 p.m. for Bad Arguments Against Religion. So that's the skinny on that event. And uh, I just wanted to give that uh, just another shout-out because of my... Uh, my mistake. All right. Let's go, first of all, to Kevin in Columbus. Uh, let me find my button. Would that be Columbus, Ohio, Kevin? Yes, sir. I okay. spoke to you several times. Uh, I go to Zenos in Columbus. Okay. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Um, these are guys that go way back with me to the Light and Powerhouse days, your pastors. Yeah, so. you told me to say, tell, you told me that you knew Gary when he had hair. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, Gary Delashman. I told him that. Right. I told Delashman. I told him that, and he gave me a toothy smile and said, "You tell him that I knew him when he had hair too." <laughs> well, I got more hair than he does. I'll say. I'll yes, say that. Do. But he's a good man, and I remember his teaching even back then. I'm talking 1974, 75. Mm-hmm. His teaching then, as just a young man, was so measured and so well done. Uh, it was exceptional. So um, I'm glad they have been so effective with their work there in not just Zenos, which is a huge church there in the Columbus area, but also all of the all of the what uh, the hiving off enterprises they have with other churches in the community. So that's great. Right. So, okay. So, so what's my up? question is my question is I heard, I I read that there's a branch of the Catholic Church that is backing. A lot of this woke stuff that's going on, yeah. but specifically, they they want they they feel it's biblical to pay, um, you know, ex you know people who've had slaves who, whose whose uh, parents were slaves reparations, and they use the justification of the Zacchaeus parable. Mm-hmm. Well, or the Zacchaeus parable, the parable but, uh, right? It's an account. Yeah, not Zacchaeus. a parable. It's an account. Right? He's repentant. And so, mm-hmm. Right. He said he because he paid back four times of. Of people he cheated, that we should, you know, as a government, should now pay back the slaves, you know, okay, so families. Good. Okay, got what it. What do you think? I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to go back to your words. He paid back four times to who? The people that he wronged. Okay, the people he cheated. So got now it. you have an individual who cheated another individual, and he's going to give money back to the individual that he cheated. Okay, that's right. what, that's okay. what's in the text. Okay, mm-hmm. what are reparations? Reparations are when people who didn't do the cheating are have money taken from them by the government. It's not they're not giving it on their own. That's another thing too. In Zacharias case, this is an act of personal reparations. Are you still there? Okay. Yes, sir. Thought maybe it popped off. This is not an act of personal. This is is an act of personal reparation because he 
There's a lot of noise going on in the background. I don't know what's going on, but it really is loud. So I, if you can settle down in the back, I don't know what what that is. Just saying, okay? Kev? Okay. Thank you. That's better. Um, uh, sometimes little sounds on your phone come through a lot stronger. People don't realize that. But So there, there is a personal act by Zach, Zach Hughes that is, um, let's see, uh, voluntary to personally repay those people he personally wronged. Okay? In this case, you have a non-voluntary act, that is, the people have money taken from them in the form of taxes, and then some other party is forcibly redistributing wealth to the part it's taken from the party who did not do the wrong, unless you want to say they're guilty because their skin color, and that's weird, to the groups that did not suffer harm. Okay? Sure. Because one way of looking at this, and I don't in any sense mean to give a short shrift to their ancestors who suffered terribly under the American slavery system. That's not my intention. But what is the consequence that befalls people today? What is the consequence that befalls the, the ancestors today? And the consequence is that they live in the most... Uh, and have a citizenship in the most desired country in the world and the most prosperous. Had their parents not been slaves, as terrible as that was, they would be in Africa, not in the United and wanting to come to the United States of America. I only say that to show that those who are ancestors of slaves have not personally suffered as a result of this terrible circumstance, but has personally benefited as a result of the circumstance. Okay? Their ancestors suffered, but they aren't suffering. And the ones who are paying back are not doing it voluntarily. It is being taken from them forcibly by the government. Okay? And the ones who are paying back are not the ones who did the wrong. So the people in the case of Zacchaeus, he is voluntarily giving to those that he personally wronged. In this case, involuntarily, the money is being taken from people who didn't do anything wrong, current-day white people or citizens in general through taxation, and given to people who have not personally been harmed as a result of slavery, but actually they are in a much better circumstance than they would have been. Now, uh, so that's how I would respond regarding the verse and the issue of Zacchaeus. It's not parallel in any meaningful way. The only thing that's parallel is money is exchanging hands. That's all that's parallel. But money exchanges hands in theft. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's not a meaningful parallel. It's not a morally or scripturally significant parallel. This doesn't work. Okay, and if you take money from someone to give it from somebody else that that other person does not deserve, that arguably is a violation of the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Okay, I understand Mm -hmm. us governments taxing for government purposes. So the government serves everybody, builds roads, uh, provides protection and military and police and education. So, okay, I get it. There's a taxation for that which benefits 
the, everyone. But when the government goes, takes on the task of, of forcibly redistributing wealth according to what it thinks is good, that's theft. Because it's taken from somebody who has earned it legitimately, and it isn't being used for the common good, which is what the Constitution allegedly was written for, the common welfare, and it didn't mean the welfare system. It meant the common good. And it is, and then it is distributing it according to a, a, a highly politicized criterion that has nothing to do with the public good. Okay, it's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's it's meant to be a kind of uh, oh, what should we call it a, um, uh, uh, a a sop to white guilt. I think is what's going mm-hmm. on there. And wokeness. Sure. We are showing how repentant we are for the sins of our fathers. Well, we've already repented for the sins of our fathers. We fought a civil war to accomplish that, and uh, and have been working ever since then to rectify the remnant injustices. But the point is, you and I and anyone else who pays taxes are not the guilty parties that ought to pay someone for what happened to someone else 200 years ago. And by the way, there were a lot of—well, I, I won't— I, I probably should just stop there and uh, <laughs> limit my comments to that, because uh, there's more aspects of this. By the way, do you know who Kevin DeYoung is? Kevin DeYoung. Do I know. Okay, Kevin well he's DeYoung. a he's no. a he's a Christian. He's a pastor in uh, North Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's uh, he used to be at East Lansing, but he's written a number of books. We've had him on the show before, but he has written a very good piece about reparations, and I think it's with the Gospel Coalition. Uh, so if you go at the Gospel Coalition website and try to find, uh, or you can just Google Kevin DeYoung, that would be D-E-Y-O-U-N-G. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what is it? Okay, uh, Amy's going to put a link to it. So, uh, But if you want it right away, Kevin DeYoung plus reparations, and you'll probably get the piece. He does. He is a marvelous writer and a marvelous thinker. He is extremely even-handed and fair-minded, in my opinion. And uh, whenever something like this comes up and he's written on it, I want to see it, because I know he's going to do a, a good job. And so I can commend that as well. But uh, that's my response to the particular attempt of applying Zacchaeus's behavior and repentance to the kind of reparations that we see now. There may be a place for reparations. Um, look at, uh, Kevin, if I stole from you and uh, and I wanted to repent, I should give back to you and maybe some plus for difficulty. I should return what's yours, and then re- reparation is a kind of repayment, and also some on top of it for the misery or anguish or whatever. But that's me to you and you to me. That's personal, and it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. That's right. nothing like what reparations are meant to accomplish. In, Wonderful. Uh, that's doing right now. Does that help? That helps a lot. I'm uh, kind of embarrassed I didn't get that myself because it very, makes very much sense. Okay, sounds good. And uh, get that piece from Kevin DeYoung because he's got so much more insight than I do on the issue. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Okay, I appreciate the call. Thank you, Kevin. Let's see. Um, let's go to uh, Tricia in Arkansas. Where in Arkansas are you, Tricia? I live in Springdale, which is in the northwest corner. Northwest. So is that uh, is that uh, Ozarks? Yes. Yeah, I like that area. So there's some really good yes. fishing up in that neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah, and woods it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I appreciate you taking my call. This is the first I've been wanting to call in for a long time, and this is the first time I've remembered to do it. I listen to the podcast every you know mornings on my way to work. And oh, I well, great! Think, well, I've got to, I've got to call in. Well, right, you're, so you're welcome, have, and now you can listen to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I have um, kind of a two-part question. The first has to do with babies uh-huh. who passed away, whether it be by miscarriage, abortion, or maybe right. they die at SIDS. Right. Um, do do they all, do we have biblical evidence that they automatically go to heaven? And I'm asking this because and I don't have biblical evidence for what I'm about to say, but I, I don't think there's varying age groups necessarily in heaven. Like, I don't think there are nursing babies that have to be taken care of for all eternity. It seems <laughs> right. like you have to go there and be, like, some kind of age, and so I'm just wondering if right. God foreknows who is going to be saved. Right. The, you know, there's some... exclude? Right. Them. Well, there is some debate about what we look like in heaven. I mean, some people die very, very old and very disabled. Others die very, very young, and they are young disabled, like an infant or even a fetus. Um, all human beings made in the image of God. What what will they look like? And there's a great book that works with a lot of these issues, and sometimes it's speculative, okay? The book is called Heaven, and uh, Amy, tell me the name of this wonderful author. He's written a lot of books. It's Heaven... Um, yeah, Randy Alcorn, thank you. And uh, and so uh, uh, I was just working through my copy a couple weeks ago, and that's one of the questions he engages, is what will we look like in heaven? And it is somewhat speculative. Well, look at when the heaven that where people go now, and that's part of your second question we'll get to in a few minutes, but that heaven is disembodied spirits. There's no resurrected people there. So there are no physical human bodies in heaven at the moment, uh, just the spirits. So, the, the, you know, you don't have to worry about, about nursing babies. Uh, what happens at the resurrection is another thing, and that's a question he engages. When, they, when we all get our resurrected bodies, what age will they be? And, um, and I, you know, he speculates there, but I think he says they're, you know, they're probably, um, you know, middle-aged, mature, when we are the most beautiful or something like that. I don't know. But it's—God can work that out. He, he's got that but, covered, okay? However, yes, this other do question— all, Do all babies go to heaven? Okay. Then? You asked if there's a specific verse that says that, and the answer is no. There's no specific verse that addresses it. There is a verse in Second uh, Samuel that many people use to make the case implicitly— that, that babies go to heaven. And I'm not convinced by this verse. Now, this remember, David sinned with Bathsheba in adultery and also murdered her husband, or had her husband essentially killed, therefore he's guilty of murder, Uriah the Hittite. And they had a child that then was ailing and then ended up dying. And after the child died, the child of this illicit relationship, uh, David stopped mourning and stopped fasting, and he went back to work. And they said, well, why is it now that he's dead that you're, you know, going back to normal living? And he said, before the baby died, maybe God would relent and heal, and so I'm in prayer and fasting for that. When the baby dies, I know the God, God's answer. And then he says, he will not come back to me, but I will go to him. 
Okay. Now, the implication that people take from that is he's in heaven, and and David will go to heaven as well and see his child. I'm personally not convinced. Um, I It may be that David was saying, the child is dead. There's nothing I can do about that. He went to the grave. He's not coming back from the grave. I'm not going to pray him out of the grave. He's in the grave, and I'm going to the grave. He's not coming here. I'm going there. I'm going to the grave also. So it may be that he's just speaking like that and not really making any theological reference to heaven. I don't know. So that's a split decision as far as I'm concerned. Other than that, I know of no um, verse itself that uh, that says that uh, babies go to heaven. Now, Ron Nash, Ronald Nash, who's no longer with us, but uh, he actually spoke for an event for me. I think it was one of the very first Stand to Reason events in Hermosa Beach many years ago. We're almost at our 29th anniversary next week. But uh, Ron Nash wrote a book. I think it's titled When a Baby Dies. When a Baby Dies. And it's meant to, uh, Amy's going to check it out for me, Ron Nash, N-A-S-H. And uh, he said uh, in that book, he argues basically the same argument that I give. Yeah, that's the title, When a Baby Dies. It's a small booklet, okay? It's not... It's not uh, a, a difficult read. But um, my view is this. Even though everybody is born in Adam and therefore has the culpability of original sin, there are no personal sins that are committed until the child is old enough to be able to manage moral categories, to know right from wrong and do the wrong thing instead of the right thing. Now, Isaiah chapter 7, uh, right around the virgin shall give birth, verse right after that is referring to an historical circumstance in Isaiah's time where when a child, I think, is born to a king, and he just mentions before the child is able to discern right from wrong. He just mentions that as a characteristic of this prophecy is given, but he's identifying, an, a, a, seems to be identifying a kind of age of accountability. You're not accountable if you, if you can't act within the confines of moral categories. You're just not accountable. So um, that means even though there is the brokenness that we inherit from Adam, there is no conscious sin committed, Okay. For a young, for young children, young, especially those who are pre, pre-born, before they were born. Okay, when you look at Revelations twenty, the judgment on the unsaved is based on their deeds. The books were opened, and every one of them is judged according to their deeds. And if their name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast in the lake of fire. So. The judgment is based on deeds, but before the age of accountability, there is no, there are no deeds against them on the book. There's not a log yet for their misdeeds to be judged for. And so my take on that, then, is that God rescues the unborn and brings them right to heaven, or the very young, or those who are older that have mental—they are so mentally incapacitated they, they can't operate— in more, proper moral categories, and uh, and what he does is the grace of the grace of God prevails in that circumstance over the uh, the sin of Adam. 
the moral culpability of being born in a fallen state and and brings them all to heaven now again that's there's conjecture there but it's not it's not uh un Supported conjecture, I, I've thought through this, there are particular reasons why I say what I do that are biblical, and it seems to be the case that God would do that, okay? Remember that the, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the little children, too. So it, there's there's a reference that Jesus made, and I think there's a there's a sense that that can be applied here. They're the little children. There's the, they're the innocent ones. And so God is not going to punish the ones that are innocent in their own behaviors, but will rather rescue them and uh, and bring them to heaven. So I, I kind of come down on the side of the people who used David's verse in Second Samuel to come to that conclusion. I actually came to the same conclusion, but I'm not leveraging my view by using that particular verse. I'm not sure about that verse. Even so, I think that babies are uh, are rescued for the reasons that I offered. Okay. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Okay. And then I had a second part about going to heaven in general. Um, in Acts, when the stoning of Stephen happens, uh-huh. whenever he looks up and sees Jesus on the right hand, and then right. he gets dragged out and stoned, and then it says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Right. So, okay, so it's that phrase, fell asleep, and I know that's referenced other places within Scripture. Yes. And then you have to think of the people pre-Jesus who died. Right. Okay, so, and I know I'm aware that Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but I'm not sure if he's talking about what time frame he means. So do people go to heaven now, or are they waiting in the grave? for Jesus to come back. Well, no, I think Paul's comment there in Corinthians is decisive. To be absent from the body is, pardon me, is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. By the way, that's in Corinthians, but he also makes a comment in Philippians. Let me see if I can find it. Um, where, so and I was just reading, the, uh, pardon me? The pre-Jesus, the pre-Jesus, group of people, so, because I... I, I'm sorry. So when we have the Holy Spirit, and we... In Abraham's day, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, so when they died, their... I I don't think the Spirit is relevant to this question, because they were in a different economy. Remember, Jesus told... Now, it's not clear whether it was a parable or as an account of some sort, but he talked about the rich man and Lazarus. After Lazarus died, the poor man, who had been sitting out the rich, mm-hmm. outside the rich man's house and the dogs were licking his sores, after he died, he went to Abraham's bosom. So he was present in a place of comfort. He was present in a place of comfort. He wasn't asleep in the grave. Okay, and here is uh, what Paul says in Philippians. Um, Let me just see here. Uh, All right. In chapter 1, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What's the gain in dying if you are asleep in in the tomb? Okay. 
asleep in the sense that some people say. That means the soul is sleeping. I don't think that's what it means, but let's just take it. If that's their view, how was it gain? It doesn't make any sense of verse 21 or chapter 1 of Philippians. But he goes on. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I can do some good here. And I don't know what to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, watch the language here, and be with Christ. For that's very much better for Paul. Yet to remain on in the flesh, that means in his human body, his mortal body, is more necessary for your sake. Huh. Okay, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Okay, so now now we have a very clear statement again by Paul that he, he could die and be with Jesus post-haste, or he could stay here in the flesh, the human body, and keep serving for a while longer. And he says, ah, it's better for me to be with Jesus, but I will serve you better by being here, so I'm going to be here. Notice that in this case, just like the other, it seems very clear that there's an immediate transference in the death, or or almost immediate, whatever, that's why I say post-haste. You're not lying in the grave for 2,000 years uh, and snoring. No, he's going right to be with the Lord. Then on the cross, uh, Jesus said to the one uh, criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So when you, you know, and I guess sometimes people strain at where to put the comma there, and there's no punctuation marks in the Greek manuscripts, but Jesus says, I, I, I say to you, today you will be with me in Paris, paradise. That's like the commas after I say to you. Some people want to say the comma comes after today. I say to you today, you will, i.e. eventually, be with me in paradise. So that tie, the comma tie there is broken by Paul's statements in Philippians and Corinthians. Okay, so uh, it seems what the Scripture teaches is that when a believer in either dispensation, Old Testament or New Testament, dies, then they go consciously to a, a place of of safety and respite, rest, consciously being comforted and being with the Lord now in the New Testament economy. So um, the the uh, then one has to ask the question, as you have, well, what do we make of the sleep stuff? You know, what do we make of that? And well, the sleep stuff is a statement. It's a it's a way of describing. It, it's a description based on appearances. The the falling asleep language is used all through Scripture about people dying. The question is, what does that mean? What they're doing is describing the repose of the physical body. How do I know that? Because I know they're not there. Jesus makes this clear in the account of the rich man and Lazarus, and Paul makes it clear. They are not sleeping inside that body. The body is what looks like it falls asleep. Then that body rots. That body isn't still sleeping, or it might get burned up with a, you know, a, cream, a cremation. But the, the, you know, then then where's the soul? It's not referring to the soul. It's referring to the repose of the body, which appears to be sleeping when one dies, or at least immediately. Then that appearance rapidly <laughs> goes away as natural processes take over. So I think that's probably that's the way to take it that makes sense of all the verses. There's no conflict. Okay. All right. Yeah. Makes sense? 
Yes, thank you. Okay, great talking to you, uh, Tricia. And let's take a break, and then we'll come back to other callers here on Stan Teresa. Stay with us. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All right, back at you here. I was just uh, boogalooing a little bit to uh, the music, and I know what you're thinking. What's a boogaloo? Well, that that means you're not <laughs> 65 years old or older. <laughs> boogaloo is a dance in the city. Never mind. Not relevant to stand a reason. Uh, let's go back to your calls. Incidentally, just so you know, um, here's the phone number if you'd like to call in in the future, 855 855- Two four three nine nine seven five. That's eight five five two four three nine nine seven five. And uh, the time of the show is Tuesday afternoons from four until six p.m. Pacific time. Should I mention something about the new landing page for the question? No alert. I can just let them know it's coming. Okay, so here's something we're doing. Amy actually and our team is putting together is a place on our website, str, stand to reason, str.org. It's a place on the website where uh, you can actually go and either um, post an str ask for us for the other show that Amy and I do together. And I hope if you like this show, I'm, I promise you, you will love Amy, okay? Amy adds so much more to the show than you're getting here. I'm on, but Amy's on too, okay? And uh, so you can post a hashtag STRS question that we answer on that show, or you can actually post an audio. Is that right? An audio, as long as it's not too long and it's clear for us, we'll have to jury that. Somebody will check it out. But then you can, we will play the audio on the show, and then I'll answer it. Okay, so it's a way of kind of participating without having to go live. 
And I imagine you'll have a feature there if somebody does an audio and they think it really stinks what they've said or how they said it or they burp or gulp or snort or something like that. They can erase it and start over. I suspect it's going to be, we'll try to have that feature. But the point is, um, that's another way that you can have your questions uh, responded to. I didn't say answered because we don't answer all the questions, but we'll respond. Um, I'm looking at one coming up here, so uh, and I'm not sure I have much to say about this. However, uh, we can we can respond to your questions even though you're not able to call in or wait in line while other people are, have their questions answered. And I know for some it's tedious. I you know got to have set aside two hours sometimes before you can get in the queue and then finally get on the show because we try to take um, an adequate amount of time with each caller so we cover the issue and sometimes that might even be 20 minutes to a half an hour with a particular caller depending um, and so this is a way of kind of getting your question in the queue and then sometimes when we're short on callers here we can go into that and we can use those as well so that's coming just saying and uh, we'll give you more details in the next couple of weeks as they get this landing page squared away for you. Okay, that said, let's go to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and this is Tim. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hello, Greg. Yeah, I do the uh, skate and the boogaloo and the walk the dog. I'm 65, <laughs> too. <laughs> the funky chicken and That's all right. right. Yeah. yeah, we're the home of the funky chicken here in Memphis. Uh, or the, uh, what was that other one? The, the Chubby Checker did that song with the twist. Okay. The twist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember my Folks, when I was in junior high, this is in uh, either the this would be in the early '60s. Even had a twist party, you know. So they had all their yeah. friends over, and they're all <laughs> twisting, and all the kids are supposed to go to bed and shut up and lock the door. You know, they bar us in, and then all the all the adults, which those adults were just in their 30s. Now I look back, they're just in their 30s, and they're. They're partying hardy. I think so. they had special mats that they would twist on. And oh, yeah, that's to, another thing. Yeah. That came later. And the twist is not easy to do. It looks easy, but, you you know, mm-hmm. most people can't last 60 seconds doing the twist. No, I don't have a hip anymore for yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. It's very <laughs> yeah, – so for some, it is dangerous, right? And so exactly. uh, it's not hard to do. It's just hard to do for very much time unless you've got <laughs> – I mean, maybe you could do this as, you know, these high-intensity workouts where you do this – you could do the twist for, you know, 20 seconds and take a 10-second break. And, the then, do, twist, and then you right. just keep doing that for four minutes, and that's like running 40 miles or something like mm-hmm. that. Okay, so what's on your mind there, Tim? So anyway, I'm a, a long-time SDR supporter, and I am a Thank you. Reformed faith right now, uh, raised Catholic. But my son turned me on to the—well, I'd already read all the fantasies of George MacDonald. You have. And— he brought up, have you read his unspoken sermons, and have you read his Hope of the Gospel, which I am in the middle of all those now, and a lot of compelling things. I was just wondering, it's hard, though, to solidify what his Christology is, and and what did Jesus actually do on the cross? I mean, he says Jesus came to save us from our sins, and there is an elect, and and, but can you help me out with this? Well, I, I can't. <laughs> and the reason is, is I know nothing about the Christology, the Christology of George MacDonald. Now, George MacDonald is a Scottish writer, predated Lewis. He had a huge influence. In the fantasy of MacDonald had a huge influence on Lewis. And, uh, and so, in, right. And yeah. I guess so, yeah. And so, in a certain sense, MacDonald was a kind of literary mentor to these men. 
I do not know anything about his particular theological commitments, except for that, in general, his fantasy was meant to capture truths about Christianity. Now, it Mm -hmm. turns out there are things about Lewis that, theologically, I disagree with. Yes. It it does seem that there was a pinch of... of, uh, not not pluralism, but inclusivism, inclusivism in his writings, and what that means is that people can get saved without believing in Jesus, but they still get saved by Jesus, and so the homage that they pay to some false god is taken by God to be homage to Him, and in fact, there's a line like that in the Last Battle of Lewis, where uh, Aslan tells the Callerman soldier, all of the, uh, all of the, the homage that you gave to Tash, the false god, I take as homage to me and worship of me. Um, even though it's very clear that Aslan uh, did not think that Tash was was the true god, it was the bad god. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the well-meaning or well-intentioned worship of Tash by this one soldier was taken as as uh, worship of Aslan. I don't think that's theologically sound, personally. So I can... I think it kind of boils down to, yes, Jesus is the only Savior, because he's the only one that did, could do, what had to be done to save men. Right, and but, uh, Lewis holds that. Yes, but according, I think, what uh, McDonald is going to is, yes, and that extends beyond the grave and that the Catholic purgatory is closer to what hell is than what the Reformed version of hell is, and and it answers questions about why would a just and loving God uh, create a person just to destroy him for eternity, knowing that he was even blinding his eyes and stopping up his ears so he couldn't hear the gospel to be tortured for eternity, and it just doesn't make sense on a lot of levels. Is that, so, um, is that a question that you're saying McDonald asks? Yes. Well, okay. he, yes, he's trying to answer that question okay. by saying, oh, okay. uh, well, I, eventually, through repentance, the sinner will come to Christ, but it could take a long, long time in hell. He's oh, after death, hell. yeah. Yeah, he's right. saying that, and, um, like Jesus said, paraphrase. You'd rather cut off your hand and uh, poke out your eye than go to hell. It's terrible. Yeah. But uh, he says everyone will eventually come to repentance. Yes. Well, of course, this is not a Christian view. Mm-hmm. Once you hold that uh, that universalism, then you are outside of the bounds of Christianity. And then one wonders. And now I'm just going by what you've said. I don't know mm-hmm. anything myself firsthand about McDonald. But then one wonders what is the point. Uh, ultimately, of evangelism and all the things that we're supposed to do. I guess you could say the point is that it's better for you to become a believer now than after a hundred thousand years in purgatory. Then you become a believer once mm-hmm. you. It's all your unbelief has been fried out of you. You know that mm-hmm. sounds to me it's weird. We're gonna. It reminds me of, of a Monty Python line. Uh, we will. Uh, you will be hung by the neck until you cheer up. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're going to torture you until you come to us in love. Yeah. I am not God. doing it justice, I'm sure, Greg. Oh, I, well. I shouldn't be even speaking to it, except his biggest takeaway is 
just start doing what Jesus said to do now. You know, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I yes, say? Right. He said, too many people talk about what Jesus did, and they know all about the passive and active obedience and everything all up to the cross and resurrection, but they still don't do what he says. And and that's that's part of walking the Christian life or coming to God. Is yeah, well, keep Jesus in mind, said. I think this, on that, those that particular passage and others like it, it we're dealing with an, an indicative. Because, in other words, the behaviors that are, are, are appropriate to Christians will be done by those who are really Christians. And those who claim to be Christian but don't do the behaviors, um, the, the, the claim doesn't help them. So Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things? I say, depart from me. And I think this is the rest of the passage. You who work iniquity, I mm-hmm. never knew you. Okay. But those people that don't know Christ or have never heard of him and still do the things that Jesus says it's written on their heart, but the problem is nobody does the things that Jesus says. Just think of the two great commandments that Jesus offered. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mm-hmm. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, no but atheist— you and I both know people that do try to do those things, even not believing in Christ. Correct, right? but, but the measurement is not the trying. The measurement is the, is the doing. And the reason that Jesus gave those commands to sum the law up is to demonstrate the impossibility of being saved through law. Mm-hmm. Nobody Agreed. is good enough to satisfy, be sat- even the, you know, the, good he- the good heathen, I mean, kind of thing. People raise that question. Well, what about the good heathen, the person who never heard? Well, actually, mm-hmm. the good heathen goes straight to heaven. Why wouldn't he? He's good. If you're, if you're specifying, stipulating that the... He's good. But what did Jesus say? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't denying he was good. He was just clarifying only God can be good. He was God. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but he is making the point. Nobody is really good in the ultimate sense. And that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about with salvation. So back to McDonald. Now, if McDonald was teaching a kind of inclusivism or a universalism, well, let me back up. Lewis was teaching, at least at one point, he was toying with inclusivism. If that's his view, I think he's wrong on that issue. But this does not, in my mind, take away from all of the rest of the wonderful things that he's written and helped us understand about living the Christian life and the work of Christ and all of that other stuff, you know. So uh, in whether it's Chronicles or whether it's uh, the Space Trilogy or whether it's Mere Christianity or, or Miracles or um, my um, uh, The Weight of Glory or any of those, all of the work that he's done, it doesn't take away from it just because I disagree with one right. one particular right. part. Now, in the same way with McDonald, even though I don't not familiar with his theology, if he was a universalist, what well, I don't think that Lewis was. But if well, he they was, call it a Christian universalist, is what they call well, it. It, it. I don't know how adding the adjective improves on the theology. Just because calling it Christian. Way, okay, yeah, I don't know. It well no it type right. of universalism is true. It's not in the Bible. Okay, and so I don't know why. I mean, certainly the great divorce um, makes a distinction between heaven and hell in mm-hmm. Lewis's writing. So he didn't side with McDonald there, but there were fabulous things in McDonald's writings that could be could could be commended to a follower of Christ and mm-hmm. uh, helped Lewis, helped Tolkien, and uh, uh, I haven't read McDonald. I uh, I've tried. 
But you, you got to I think I gave my daughter a book of McDonald, my eldest, because she likes he's Scottish and uh, yeah. and she likes th- those tales and stuff. So I think I got one for her recently over Christmas. But I don't know if she's read it or not, because it might be too Christian for her right now. Uh, in any event, um, they're good stories. But I, I'm just not I guess I'm not for myself. I'm not really tuned into that genre. Okay, so yeah. um, but his um, hope of the gospel and his unspoken sermons. I know you've got the whole list of Harry Potter to read because I heard <laughs> that's on your right. reading list. But if you could throw those in somewhere, and I'll call back in in you know a year and find out what you think. Yeah, well, we'll see. I, I, I realistically, I probably won't. I've just got a whole bunch of things in the queue. This is my recreational reading. Well, right now, I, I just finally finished The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, over, you know, what, 1,100 pages? I got that down. <laughs> I've got another 600-page uh, World War II book um, yeah. that and I'm— I'm a miserable myself. So oh, well, there you, you go. So we, we both are—we uh, have death wishes, right? You know, the, the right. reading's going to kill us. But uh, well, anyway, I take help. breaks at different times, and so I'm just reading through this book. Uh, I, I'm halfway through. I get— more than halfway through this 650-page book, which is a really granular look at the Western Front in the Second World War from Nor- Normandy to Berchtesgaden, and so I'm just—it's uh, uh, almost like too granular. It gets almost tedious sometimes. But in any event, there's sure a lot of dead bodies in that war. I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, just to speak generally, I think there could be a lot of good things that we can commend uh, to people from McDonald, but without commending his 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 uh, uh full-fledged theology because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that have some good things and then some nah, not so good things mixed in we try mm-hmm. to eat the meat and throw away the bones and i think mm-hmm. this is what but lewis did with mcdonald and uh because he certainly didn't adopt the universalist um view of heaven and hell mm-hmm. if that's what mcdonald's view was does that help it does Thanks for your help. Okay, buddy. And talk uh, to you later. yeah, mm-hmm. talk to you later. I guess, and I hope to do so. All right, let's. Uh, look, I'm looking at the call. Let's just go right to the last call instead to a break here, and this would be Coleman in Reno, Nevada. Hello, Coleman. Hey, Greg. How you doing today? Oh, I'm pretty good. Had a really good couple of shows here, moving right along, and you made it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, just wanted to say thank you so much for um, all the work that you and the Stand to Reason team do. It's uh, it's really benefited my Christian walk and okay. um, how I I view the Bible and uh, ministry and everything. Uh huh. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, thanks. So, uh, what's on your mind here today? Let's see if we can help you with this. So, yeah. So, I had a question. So, my brother, uh, he used to be a pretty devout Christian. He was going into ministry. He went to Bible college and the full gamut, and uh, he walked away from the church, um, I don't know, probably about seven, eight years ago, um, and he's just been very hurt from church leadership, from people in the church um, that just, he feels like, didn't treat him like a Christian should, Mm -hmm. and um, through this process, he's kind of just eventually became an atheist because he doesn't believe in the uh, redemptive power of Jesus because, you know, all of these people that he thinks should walk the walk as a Christian um, ended up disappointing him and Mm -hmm. hurting him and, you know, not walking like 
Christians should, at least in, in his viewpoint. So sure. I'm just having trouble um, figuring out how to evangelize to him in particular yeah. because of his objection. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, there's a mistaken thinking here that's being made, but in a certain sense, it's hard to get to that issue because something else is in the way. There are a massive amount of people, massive number of people, who are hostile to Christianity for the exact same reason that your brother is, and that is that they have been hurt by other Christians. I have people very close to me that are not Christians because they have been hurt by other Christians. Okay? Now, the problem in thinking is that they've been hurt by other Christians is somehow evidence that Christianity isn't true. But they're looking at the wrong object, because the object that they ought to be looking at isn't other Christians, but Christ. Okay, now I understand the concern, well, if there was really redemptive power in Christ, then these people wouldn't do the things they did to me. Well, let me, I'll, I'll deal with that in a moment. But um, the first thing I want to say is that Christianity is not about Christians, it's about Christ. And it's about, and, and incidentally, being hurt and reject, and therefore rejecting Christianity does not, it doesn't follow that there is no God. I mean, that's another odd thing. People jump from, <clears throat> emotionally jump away from the church and jump right into atheism, which has its own problems. Because the biggest, the killers of the 20th century, which was the bloodiest century in the history of the world, were all atheists, and they killed because they were capable of doing that in virtue of their atheism. So I don't know why this helps him. And I know people like Richard Dawkins say, well, they didn't do it in the name of atheism. You don't have to do it. I don't think that the people who hurt your brother did it in the name of Jesus. They did it in virtue of being human beings that are fallen. And when you go to atheism, Atheism allows that kind of thing, because there's no moral standard that disallows it that's inherent to atheism. So he's jumping in with a bunch of wolves. Moral, you know, I don't know why that's better. Okay, for one. Okay, now he may think, well, that's not my friends who are atheists. Oh, good. So in other words, not everyone who's an atheist follows the principles of atheism to something ugly. Well, guess what? Not all the people who are Christian follow the principles of Christianity to something good, but rather are ugly instead. And see, this is the second mistake. Not only are they not assessing whether or not Christianity is true based on Jesus, but on Christian people, they're actually break, assessing it based on the actions of some Christian people that they encountered that hurt them. And I'm completely sympathetic to the to the to the idea that the pain could have been really significant, and uh, and and it turns out that a massive number, as I just mentioned, of people are have fallen away from Christianity because individual Christians have hurt them. But that's not the lot of them. There are massive numbers of individual Christians that demonstrate the redemptive power of Jesus because they're magnificent human beings. I know all kinds of them. And I think it's fair to question whether somebody who is, even in church leadership, who is unchrist-like, is in fact a Christian at all. Remember, Jesus said, depart from me, you who work, I never knew you, you who work iniquity. 
Depart from me. You say, Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say. So this came up on an earlier call, but it applies here too. So in a certain sense, the rational part of it is to, and, and he may not even be open to that, but the rational part is that that we look to Christ, not to Christians. Christians are fallen. Even the best of us are still fallen, and we're going to have bad times. We're going to have bad moments. But the fact is that but there's a whole bunch of people that are really nasty that aren't Christians at all. And what God has done in the lives of many, many multitudes upon multitudes of human beings is to transform them and to transform their lives. And so demonstrating the redemptive power that is in Christ. Okay? So in a certain sense, that's the facts of the matter. But on another hand, okay, how do you convince him of that? I don't know if he's willing to have that conversation. Uh, It may be that God doesn't exist. It may be that Christianity is false, but it can't, it it is not, you can't get there from the route that he's taken to determine Christianity is false and God doesn't exist. Um, That's just a, that's just a misstep. And I don't think atheism is going to get him anything better. It's going to get him a lot worse, ultimately. But maybe personally, he feels now he's rid of that inconvenient religion stuff. But uh, as a worldview, atheism is much darker than Christianity as a worldview. Christianity is filled with light. Darkness is, I mean, um, atheism is nothing, is, is nothing Nothing is. There is no God, therefore there is no transcendent meaning, there is no morality, there is no problem of evil, there is no good either. It's just molecules in motion. All right? So it's nihilistic, nothingism, basically, where Christianity is is exactly the opposite. Now, you look at Christian, so-called Christian people, you're going to get a mixed bag. Okay? Okay, so now, how do we deal with it on a personal basis? And my I, I would want to capitalize maybe on this. Um, hey, bro, I understand what happened. I am so sorry, and I, I, I wasn't party to it, but I am going to apologize as a believer, as a follower of Christ. I'm going to apologize for what you experienced. That was wrong. And because it was so wrong what they did, there's a good chance that they actually don't know Christ at all. Because Christ would never condone this. However, I apologize, but I know what Christ has done in my own life, you might say, in the lives of others. There are people whose lives have been radically redeemed by Christ. Their lives show it. And then this means, too, from here on out, you need to really demonstrate the goodness of Christ in your own life towards him, which you'd want to do anyway. But uh, that might be the—who knows? That might be a factor— in turning him around. I don't know. Everybody's an individual. There's no silver bullets. Here's the exact thing to say that's going to make a difference in his life. There's no nothing like that, you know. It may be that he chooses never to turn around and address the issue, which is his sin, not the Christian leadership's sin, but his sin before God, and how he's going to answer for that, because he will answer for it one way or another, either with Christ or without Christ. And uh, and so that's, I mean, that's the reality of it. Um, and he may just, may, he may not ever turn his head again in our direction, in Christ's direction, I should say. Um, so at least, at least you have a handle on 
kind of some of the mistakes that are being made there, and you might formulate your understanding there into a, some questions you could ask of him. But you're going to have to really step lightly with him and gently because of the injury he has experienced at the hands of other Christians. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's uh, that's really helpful. I appreciate the uh, input. Um, I I have tried stepping, you know, as lightly as I can, trying to not really prod him too much. I, I try to bring it up here and there, but um, he's he's very bitter and angry and um, yeah. closed off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happens when you have emotional wounds. I'm dealing with some of that in another context right now, and it's very, very hard to manage. This is why we, we, we want to avoid causing those wounds in the first place, you know, so that we don't have to resolve them. Uh, this, by the way, is what, uh, what forgiveness is for, because forgiveness is God's means of repairing the past. I might have mentioned this before, I might mention it more in the future, but just very quickly. How do you repair the past? That's water under the bridge. It's all over with, you know. It's no, you you can't you can't go back in time. Well, you're right on that, but you can make a difference. And that is uh by you can make a difference in the past by repairing it through forgiveness. And maybe there's a sense in some way where your brother will be able to forgive those people who hurt hurt him. I don't know. But my heart goes out to you, Coleman, in Reno, Nevada. Okay, hang in there, buddy, and pray for your brother. All right, that's it, friends, for this hour. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven. Bye-bye.